0: Episode... 36, the atomic number of Krypton, 36 is a perfect score on the ACT. I took the SAT three times such that I could get in the 80th percentile, but I didn't have great grades either. Yet, the University of California, Los Angeles, and Berkeley let an unremarkable kid in. Why? Because we hadn't lost the fucking script back then. Higher ed is about not taking the 1% and turning them into billionaires, but taking the other 99%, i.e. yours truly, and giving them a shot at the 1%. We need to fall back in love with the unremarkables. Let's love the unremarkables. Let's start here. Go, go, go. Welcome to the 36th episode of The Prof G Show. In today's episode, we speak with Joost van Drune. Joost van Drunen, where's Margaret Vestier? Anyway, anyway, Joost teaches at NYU Stern School of Business. He's a colleague and is the author of One Up Creativity Competition and the Global Business of Video Games. Uh, he is a really interesting blue flame thinker. He's probably, I think, one of the key academics in the world right now in video games. And of course, NYU Stern, we sort of woke up and realized that we had the top academic in a $160 billion industry. Anyways, Yost shows up and illuminates us. He gives us the 411. He drops some knowledge. Okay, what's happening? The IPO get the hound, has been waiting for us finally inside. Airbnb dropped their S1. They are going public, it looks like, in December. Some of the interesting things in the filing, the most interesting, the most interesting factoid that I found, approximately 91% of all traffic to Airbnb, get this, 91% is coming through direct or unpaid channels during the nine months ended in September 30th, 2020. Nine of 10... Customers are not coming through the stranglehold of Facebook and Google. Who else can say that? Can Amazon say that? I don't think so. Can any consumer brand, I don't care if you're Marriott or Chanel, can anyone claim that they are getting 90% of their traffic through non-big tech channels? Think about the customer acquisition costs, how much lower they're going to be than everybody else who has to go out and pimp themselves and start paying rents to Google or Facebook. I thought that was the most interesting, the most, most interessante thing about this filing. They also showed a $700 million loss on two and a half billion in revenue for the first nine months of the year, despite a Q3 profitable quarter. So in contrast, in contrast, DoorDash also filed to go public. DoorDash lost a shit ton of money last year, lost a lot less this year, but here's the difference. Here's the difference. Airbnb, is going public despite a pandemic. DoorDash is going public because of the pandemic. And who do you want to own? Who do you want to own, assuming assuming that the pandemic at some point ends, whether it just it burns out because we're so fucking incompetent that at some point it runs out of hosts, or in fact that we find a vaccine that doesn't need to be f- frozen to negative 700 Degrees Celsius. Whatever is going to happen at some point. The terrible thing about crises, including pandemics, is that they always happen. We pretend this hasn't happened before. It happens all the time. We just decided we didn't want to be prepared for it. The wonderful thing about these crises is that they always end. So who do you want to own when this thing ends? I think you want to own. I think you want to own Airbnb. The IPO announcement comes at a moment when we have record-breaking COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. While at the same time. Moderna joined Pfizer in the race to produce a successful vaccine. Moderna announced that its COVID-19 vaccine proved to be 95% effective. That's exciting. And airline, hotel, and cruise stocks all like the sound of it. You saw an incredible rip back up of the beach stocks and a decline in the pandemic trade, although I personally think the pandemic trade is the way to go for the next two months because like everything that has happened in this pandemic, it's going to take longer than we would like. Despite the pandemic taking a toll on revenues, I believe Airbnb has the potential to be the most valuable hospitality firm in the world on the IPO, on the IPO, and one of the 10 strongest brands in the world. Think about this. What other brand, what other brand has 40 million people on the platform, right? So more people on the Airbnb platform that live and live in California, and they have 7 million listings worldwide. That's more than Marriott International, Hilton, Intercontinental Hotels, Wyndham, Hyatt combined. More impressive and singular, Airbnb is the only hospitality brand that is the global awareness to generate unrivaled demand. What do you do? You go on Google, which is an incredible font of information. And if you type in Orlando Hilton, Orlando Holiday Inn, Orlando Four Seasons, you see, you see a fraction of the searches for Orlando Airbnb. Name the city, name the destination with a suffix Airbnb, and it dominates what people are searching for. See above, 91% of their traffic is free, is free. Why? Because this is the strongest brand in the history of hospitality, how can I say that? Singapore Airlines an amazing brand. It's a regional brand. Delta, an incredible brand. It's regional. You don't think about Delta if you live in Rome. Four Seasons, an amazing brand that's global. Fair point, fair point. But it's not relevant to 97% of the population that can't afford to spend 800 bucks a night out of Four Seasons. What is What is the global brand with the most relevance? Hands down, hands down. Airbnb and market valuation has a habit has a habit of footing to awareness and share. And that share and awareness, the one brand, the most valuable firm in hospitality, the most valuable, I don't care if you're an airline, I don't care if you're a hotel, I don't care if you're a resort, the most valuable firm in that space will be the one with the biggest brand. And that brand is Airbnb. What else is the mother of all moats around Airbnb? Simple. If we had $10 million, you and me, if we had $10 million, we could start a ride hailing company in Denver. That is with 10 million bucks, we could get enough supply, that is drivers. We could get enough demand, that is people who want ride hailing by advertising on, I don't know, Google or Facebook or on billboards, and we'd have a small little Denver dog ride hailing, right? Duber, duber, dubage, which means something entirely different. Anyway, anyway, we could do it. If you wanted to start an Airbnb though, In Denver, what do you need? You need local supply, but you need global demand because 97% of the people staying in your rented apartments are from somewhere other than Denver. So this is an enormous moat. So how do you value this thing? I think the only firms I can think of that have a global demand supply and brand equity of Airbnb and also enjoy an asset-light high-margin business are the credit card companies, which trade at a 20-plus multiple of revenues. Airbnb projects 2021 revenues of five to six billion, yielding a credit card-like valuation, if you will, of 100 and 120 to billion. Supposedly, it's going public at 30 billion or the valuation they're going to raise between one and three billion at 30 billion. Full disclosure, I do not own any stock, but I am going to lie, cheat, and steal to try and get some of the stock. I want to see what happens to it on day one, how much it pops. But I think this is a great buy. And other exciting business developments. Let's check in on the mouse. That's right. Disney reported their Q4 earnings last week. Park's experiences and product revenues for the quarter decreased 61% to $2.6 billion. Hello, ouch. While its direct-to-consumer and international revenues for the quarter increased 41% to $4.9 billion. Now, remember, the company faced pressure to double down on streaming after activist investor Dan Lope, Total Gangster, Total Gangster, urged the company to cancel it's $3 billion annual dividend payments and focus on its streaming service. This is really interesting. Most activists typically show up and through financial engineering say, increase the dividend, stock will pop in the short term, and then I'm out of here. Dan is saying, no, you need to command the space you occupy, double down on content, which takes capital. Where it's, What's the easiest or cheapest source of that capital? Cancel the goddamn dividend. The move to the Rundle here could be unprecedented. The company announced that it would put a pause and forego its semi-annual dividend payment in January. And Disney's board members say this is due to the ongoing impacts of COVID-19. No, it's not. No, it's not. They're testing the waters. Hey, shareholder base, are you, are you the spineless, you know, sackless people we think you are? Or do you see the opportunity from Disney? And by the way, what happened when they canceled the dividend or put it on pause, I should say? What happened? The stock's gone up in the last week. This gives cloud cover to a bunch of companies who have a fantastic assets, but need to double down on those assets, for example, AT&T, and reinvest in the content and command the space they occupy. They claim they were pausing it because of COVID-19 and the company's decision to invest in its direct-to-consumer initiatives. In that same earnings report, Disney revealed that its one-year-old Disney Plus had surpassed 73 million subscribers. Oh my gosh, I think that's the population of Germany, up from 61 million subscribers reported in August. Disney didn't expect to hit these numbers until 2024. The pandemic is an accelerant, not a change agent. And the bottom line is Quibi was stupid, so it went out of business faster. Disney Plus is gangster and it's going, it's being leapt forward. The future is being pulled forward, good and bad. The company's market cap is around a quarter of a trillion, 256 billion. We talked about this last week with Tom Rogers, total gangster, and I'll say it again, Disney has the potential to create the ultimate rundle with all of its assets. What's interesting, could ATT have the ultimate rundle? What's a rundle? A rundle is an IQ test. Do you have do you have Netflix? Yeah, I have a credit card, and my IQ is over 80. Do you have Amazon Prime? Yeah, I have a credit card and my IQ is over 60, right? These aren't these aren't decisions or IQ tests. So an effective recurring revenue bundle. It's easy to say that, but it has to be an IQ test. It has to be so compelling, meaning you have to have the assets to pull it off. Disney probably does have the assets, but they need to deploy them. They need to unleash the mouse and make them all part of a recurring revenue bundle, which you've talked about here. Does AT&T, does AT&T, CNN, HBO, Warner, Cartoon Network, do they? I don't know. That's a tough one. They're powerful, but are they powerful enough to make it an IQ test? Don't know. Don't know. If it's not, if it's not, what do you have here with AT&T and Time Warner? You have an amazing $150 billion business, AT&T, that's regulated, that's a duopoly, AT&T and Verizon, that's flat to increasing. Okay, and then you have a $30 billion business, right, called Time Warner, that is being assaulted by tanks, overrun by tanks from Cupertino and from Seattle. Simply put, all of a sudden, media has been featureized; it's used to sell handsets and paper towels, which can be monetized at a greater multiple. So you have content players coming in and spending, I don't know, the defense budgets of Canada and Australia on content, basically dumping content the same way the Chinese dump steel in an effort to consolidate the market. And you have Time Warner who is told, yeah, be innovative, but give me my EBITDA sitting there thinking, all right, how do we compete against content companies that have general cost of capital? What should they do? What should they do? They should either double down and make this literally a bundle that no one can resist, a rundle. And I'm not even sure they can get there. A lot of that is, do they have the shareholders to put up with a serious decline in EBITDA and that kind of massive reinvestment of the dividend and amazing content across HBO, such that they could exit the advertising industrial complex where to watch amazing content from Fareed Zakaria, one of my professional role models, seriously. They get 23 cents for pelting nine or 11 minutes of ads or out of opioid-induced constipation, meaning that Time Warner values my time at a buck an hour. Well, thanks, Time Warner, for that, but find a way to charge me to charge me a buck an hour to watch Fareed, and I'll absolutely pay that. And they could go there, but they would have to go through the valley of death of getting rid of all of those affiliate and advertising fees from Pfizer and diabetes medications and the Calm app. Anyways, Anyways, speaking of streaming services we like, Netflix is testing out a linear channel. That's right, you heard me, a linear channel in France. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, alert the, I don't know, alert the, I'm trying to come up with something French that is not incredibly disparaging. It's, It's the impenetrable Maginot line. Variety reported, that's some World War II humor. Variety reported that Netflix has around 9 million subscribers in France and is calling this test feature direct. Direct is only available to subscribers and can only be accessed via a web browser. This channel will air TV series and films that are already in Netflix's library, but in a linear format, meaning anyone watching on the Direct channel will be watching the same thing. Oh my God, mind blown. The Queen's Gambit, the little... She did not expect that. She did not see that move on the table. No, no, no. Rook seven to pawn eight. I don't know what that means, but nobody, nobody was saw this move coming. Netflix said in a statement that it's testing this feature out in France because traditional TV consumption is very popular. Many viewers like the idea of programming that avoids having to choose what to watch. I wonder if France, if they watch TV with their arms crossed and say, I don't like it. Anyway, Netflix subscriber growth slowed down a bit after seeing record numbers at the start of the pandemic and only gained 2.2 million paid subscribers between July and September, 2020. According to Forbes, that is the smallest or the most anemic quarterly increase since 2016. Despite that, Netflix gained more subscribers during the first nine months of 2020 than all of 2019. The company currently has just under 200 million subscribers worldwide. Netflix, oh my gosh, how do you, if you're Time Warner, if you're any streaming video platform, how do you compete with people who own the rails, who own the rails, like an Apple, or can throw just so much capital at the thing because their midlife crisis boss wants to take his new girlfriend to the Emmys and is willing to spend $350 million for each Emmy versus $70 million at HBO. How do you compete? How do you compete? And then how do you compete with a company that's going to spend $20 billion on content this year? What does that mean? It means that HBO is going to launch one new series or an original movie every week this year. But guess what? Guess what? Netflix is launching one every week. Day. it is such a wonderful time to have a really, really wonderful couch and edibles. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Jos van Drunen.
1: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
0: Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Joost von Drunen, a colleague at the NYU Stern School of Business and the author of One Up Creativity Competition and the Global Business of Video Games. I first met Joost when he came to, he basically said, I'm a professor at NYU. I love the work you're doing at L2. And he's been very open. He said, I'm gonna start a company that does what L2 does, but for video games. I sold L2 in 2017, and then he sold his company to Nielsen which looked at the video gaming industry. He sold it in 2018. So he is, um, I don't want to call him a mini me because as far as I know, he sold this company for a billion dollars, but he's a really impressive guy. And we woke up and wouldn't you know, we have one of the great blue flame thinkers at NYU Stern around the video game industry, which by the way, is enormous. Anyways, here's our interview. Okay, Yoast, where does this podcast find you?
2: I'm in Brooklyn, Fort Greene in the basement.
0: Nice. So Joost, our Professor Van Drunen, teaches a very popular course on, what's the course called, Joost?
2: The Business of Video Games.
0: Yeah, there you go. So that's why we have Joost on. So let's start there. Give us a kind of video games for dummies, overview of the industry.
2: So the games industry, in a nutshell, has transitioned from the fringes of entertainment to become mm-hmm. a mainstream form mm-hmm. of how people spend their time. Uh, And it has done so while every other media and entertainment industry sort of collapsed on top of itself. And so the nutshell, the the summarized version goes something like this. Over the last decade, the industry has really blossomed as a result of digitalization uh, and the popularization of the smartphone. So the industry moving away from a product model to a service model has allowed it to really grow. So today it's about $160 billion worldwide in consumer spending, it's about two and a half billion people that play games regularly, every day, every week. Most of us will remember a time when, you know, you try to shove a cartridge into a Nintendo entertainment system, or you're fiddling around with your Game Boy. So nowadays we have, you know, a new generation of Xbox Series X, the new PlayStation 5. Uh, We have cloud gaming on the horizon. And so all that kind of amounts to an industry that as we see news and video and music kind of wrestling and struggling with, you know, digitalization or this move to the internet, uh, you see the games industry thrive. So it's always been an interesting topic for my class and in other uh, conversations to figure out what makes them so different.
0: So a couple of things jumped out. The first is 160 billion. So domestic box office I think is 5 or 7 billion. How big is the cable bit? I mean that's even though we all know about video games and anyone with kids at home is exposed to video games, I feel as if the business press relative to the size of the industry, it doesn't get nearly the oxygen it deserves. I mean 160 billion dollars. What are some analogies here? That's a bigger industry than what ca- cable it, it, I think it is bigger than cable television,
2: isn't it? It's uh, in, in, uh, on a country level basis, it's, it's the third largest entertainment industry in, in the US, right behind cable TV and ad-based broadcast TV.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's definitely bigger than radio in all its formats and music, video, and so on. Uh, newspapers, magazines, of course. Uh, globally, it's the same size roughly as the sports business, right? So if you add it all up, all of the different sports and varieties and flavors and all of the different sponsorships, of course, that's a business that makes a lot of its money indirectly, whereas games is pure direct consumer spent currently, and mm-hmm. uh, its uh, as it is. So it's been a, it's a fascinating business uh, in its own right.
0: So in traditional media, you have the content guys, and you have the cable or the distribution, and sometimes they're vertical, but there's a tension mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know a peaceful coexistence, all-out war. What is the relationship like between the biggest content players? Who are they, and the biggest distributors, and how many of them are vertical?
2: So, there's three main components to that traditionally. So you'd have the the game publishers, big content creators to do all the marketing. They create all the you know the confetti and glitter. Mm -hmm. Then there's the platform holders, right? So the Nintendos, the Sony's, and the Microsofts that sit in the middle that sell the devices and create an install base against which content creators then say. I'm interested they have enough users out there. We're going to build something that works with their box. And then of course there's the retailers, Best Buy, GameStop, Walmart, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so those relationships tend to all kind of they're all in it together, right? So they out of a $60 game, a publisher will get $24, um, a platform will get $12, and the retailer will get 12. And then the remainder is sort of carved up between the developer and you know, in a traditional sense, also the distributors, like the, the man in the van kind of uh, firms. That has shifted dramatically because of digitalization, because now no longer are you working with GameStop. I'm sure you've been reading about GameStop uh-huh. and the traditional way of doing uh, retail. It's now about Apple. It's now about Steam. And so you have these digital distributors, and they tend to be vertically integrated, where me as a, as a creative firm, I can just sign up. I can release my title, my game, On their platform, but they then handle everything for a thirty percent cut, right? And so now, ostensibly, I have you know the benefit of making seventy percent of everything. At the same time, I am entirely beholden to this one gatekeeper that gives me access to my customer base. So the economics, so the negotiating power of the creatives has diminished to some degree, unless you're very, very large. And so that has been an interesting uh, point of tension in the industry over the last few years.
0: And that the, the choke point there has been Apple because they own the Rails. They're the ones that are are they placing if I look at streaming video, it just strikes me if you look across Hulu, Netflix, Disney Plus, Apple gets between three and twelve percent of their revenues by just charging them that thirty percent first year, twenty percent second year. They basically heads you in, heads you lose tails I went. They're making money across every streaming video platform. Is it the same in the gaming industry?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in terms of games, the App Store is 90 plus percent just video games, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's on Google Play or whether that's on the uh, Apple App Store. They make about $11 billion a year. The, the difference with the traditional, the conventional platform holders is that Apple doesn't really reinvest that money back into the ecosystem, right? So if Microsoft and Sony push out a new console, which they're currently doing, and it's all very interesting. But so what they're doing, they spend a lot of money on marketing. They're subsidizing a lot of development because they want there to be great content for their platform, so that people will buy the new box. And that box will last them about seven years with some iterations to it. But mostly, it's one solid five to seven year generation. Mm-hmm. In Apple's universe, they you know they have that planned obsolescence. So you have a new device every year, and then Apple does not. Then give people subsidies, or you know, start investing in exclusive content because they don't care about that, right? For the same reason that Google and Facebook and Amazon also don't. Um, they really see it as uh, something that's uh, a complementary asset to their larger business of selling phones, mm-hmm. and it helps them sell phones, obviously. Whereas, you know, by comparison, Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft—they sell fifty to hundred million devices of their of their consoles, and that's about it you know, their money really comes from selling the software. And so then they are much more willing to negotiate with the creative community to say, well, what what can we help you build so that we both can be successful? Whereas Apple, they're really just rent-seeking in that context.
0: So talk about big tech. Talk about over the last five years, much less 10 years, just in the last five years, it feels as if big tech's power has grown exponentially. Has that impacted the video gaming industry as much as it's impacted, say, streaming video or e-commerce?
2: The short answer is yes. So, so, you know, you have to imagine that the largest U.S. publisher, Activision, mm-hmm. Activision Blizzard, acquired King Digital uh, back in 2014 for but six billion dollars. Um, sorry, uh, four billion dollars. And so, what they did was basically buy into a mobile part of the ecosystem. Right, mobile had been the big growth segment in the industry. You have Conventionally, you have three categories: console gaming, PC gaming, and mobile gaming. Mobile gaming just went bonkers, and so Activation bought in. They bought the biggest uh, uh, publisher at the time, and they did that really just to have access to that audience and to have access to that technology and the IP. And so they filled out the little pie chart of how many people they reached um, and you know what the makeup of that audience was. All of them now are suddenly in that same strategy, beholden to Apple and Google because those are really the only two platforms. And really, it's it's Apple for most of them that that makes most of the money. But the retail relationship, which you know you know all too well, b- between a creative firm and these platform holders, is very different than traditionally with conventional retailers, right? And by which I really mean if GameStop and Walmart, they're into you know selling titles boxes at their stores they're Mm -hmm. willing to kind of work on the margins they're willing to promote and subsidize and give you you know shelf space all this stuff and all of that is incorporated into the strategy and the relationship and the contacts that they make with an amazon and apple those companies increasingly will parse out all of these bits and features saying it's required that you have an account manager you have to have you know this much money for marketing available. So they have all these requirements and they start to charge all of those things separately as line items rather than one big agreement. And so that's very annoying for creative firms, especially big ones, because they're not used to being treated this way. So it puts them on the back foot. At the same time, they have no choice but to go through them because that's the access point to that massive audience of mobile gamers. So in other words, you have all of a sudden you have these big time legacy publishers that are now sitting in a very different spot at the table having to negotiate much harder with these new retail relationships that they didn't have before. So that's a that's a point of friction, inevitably.
0: Last five years, who have been the biggest winners in terms of increasing stakeholder value or power or currency in the video gaming sector and who have been the biggest losers?
2: That's a good question. So the, the biggest winners uh, in my mind will always be the content creators. And so the Top line IP holders that we all know and love—you know, whether that's fantasy role-playing games, sport games, or what else have you—those tend to do really, really well. Um, at the same time, I think it's also important to note that these legacy publishers have been totally t-bombed by these newcomers from, particularly China. So companies like NetEase and particularly Tencent have been incredibly successful, right? So, and the and the reason for all this uh, would be then uh, legacy publishers, because they are used to doing things in a certain way, like they have this sort of mental inertia about embracing new technologies. They look at it saying, well, I'm used to having my console relationships. I'm happy with my retail partners. I'm not chasing mobile down as fast as everybody else. We're just gonna wait and see. But in the process, of course, they lost a lot of momentum allowing a lot of new companies to enter into the space. And you, so you see this shift in power dynamics between legacy publishers in the traditional product sense, slowly accommodating the new economics. And then you know the, the real winners, of course, then being the companies like Tencent, uh, Nexon, uh, and some of the, the big firms over there. Alibaba is going hard after, after gaming now too. And it's purely because they were able to kind of sneak in under the radar because the legacy corporations were slow to move. So while they've been very successful in raising their own share price and you know, their market cap valuations, at the same time, you know they totally left the door open for you know, on a global scale, a whole bunch of competitors to move in.
0: And if you think about, so this industry, well, my kids uh, are checking Walmart and Amazon every day and have been unable to get the new PS5. There's so much, so much excitement lately about new consoles coming out. Give us your sense of just someone in the industry of how, you know, what's coming out, what's exciting about it, and some predictions around if and how it changes the ecosystem. It's all I'm hearing about in my household right now, and I I just don't understand it that well.
2: Okay, so, so the biggest thing about, so you understand platform economics, right? So, and and the way that that can reset an ecosystem. So. Unlike every other category in games, the console releases they dramatically change the uh, hardware specifications or ostensibly do so every generation. Mm-hmm. And so you've been hearing for a long time about oh the PlayStation Five coming out, the new Xbox Series X uh, is coming out, and it's all very excited. Um, and it's exciting because it makes it so that now we have not new capability, right? And so for a lot of traditional uh, console audiences this is the new thing and Mm -hmm. so now we have 4k graphics we can really just you know do things that we couldn't do before Uh, and so it's a sort of a hardware upgrade that happens simultaneously across the entire space both for the consumers as well as the creatives so that's what makes it exciting right it's it's sort of the launch of a whole new category of course this is relative speaking on on the you know it is a big step compared to say mobile, mobile gaming goes up, but it's not really that big of a deal every iteration of a new iPhone Uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, PC gaming, of course, is more open in terms of hardware specs. And so a new console is sort of a mid-spec PC in many ways. But what it does, it creates a lot of marketing momentum, a lot of creative energy, and that's where you start to see new games coming out, And so that's where the excitement lives saying, you know, can we build more immersive experiences? Can we have more, uh, you know, believable characters and these in-depth narratives around all kinds of scenarios? And so you see, for instance, Sony spending a ton of money on content acquisition, uh, buying you know very specific studios to build particular IP out for them. Uh, Microsoft is doing the same. They just spent eight billion dollars on ZeniMax Media, and then of course, you know, very obviously, you move into a conversation about ownership and consolidation because it's to everybody's benefit to then own all this stuff right so microsoft to make its new xbox more interesting they buy a bunch of stuff sony does the same and nintendo has been experimenting and 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 rolling out a whole bunch of innovative indie content so there's all these different strategies in the market so that there's enough consoles and there's enough money being spent and to kind of grow the overall pie and it's a it's a fascinating because every time you have a new console release it sort of resets the clock we start at zero again and the question is okay last cycle in the eighth generation the playstation 4 was about a two to one ratio to the xbox one can they do it again can sony once again you know sell two to one units to microsoft and my expectation is that they're going to have a harder time this uh, this time, because it's they're not as well equipped to deal with the overall digitalization in the industry. So you see Microsoft doing really well, for instance, with subscription models, and they have Game Pass, and they're moving into the cloud very aggressively. Whereas Sony, you know, is doing a fantastic job in terms of its content rollout, but it doesn't seem as future-proof currently as a, as its competitor. So it's a really interesting reset of the industry, whereas it's been they've been the dominant one for years, and then because of this hardware reset. They are now open to being much more vulnerable to everybody else. Talk about the
0: opportunity for different types of content on these platforms. So someone has said to me, you should teach a class or do one of your decks on Twitch, or you're seeing just non-traditional content you don't think of streaming through these platforms. What is... What should different media and content creators and IP creators be thinking about around how they leverage some of these new channels and these enormous audiences?
2: Here's an example. There's a company called uh, Ven, which is built by people that used to work uh, at Blizzard and ride games to these big, well-known game companies that, were very, that are very big in esports and live streaming. And I'll just take a step back. Live streaming, I mean, things like Twitch, or live streaming on YouTube, right, where people are watching other people play video games on the internet. And it's either just some jovial banter. It's some you know funny person with blue hair sort of clicking away and having a good time. Or it's competitive, where it's the best players from two countries trying to win. So in that category, you then see that a lot of game companies kind of get lost, right? And so they said, well, we want to also do esports. We also want to do live streaming. Uh, it's become an accommodation with regards to marketing, right? So you have to imagine like, if I'm going to spend 60 bucks on the game, if I'm going to spend my time on a game, I really want to know in advance if the game is any good. Uh, And so so that creates sort of a consumer uncertainty because I don't know if I want to have a good time. I'm standing at the GameStop, I'm holding the box. I guess it's a good game. And so that kind of uncertainty then, of course, makes the market less efficient. Live streaming answers all those questions. I can just watch some dude play whatever game for twenty minutes and decide whether or not I want to play this. You know, I could play this game for free, probably, right? And so it, it changes dramatically how we uh, create awareness, purchase intent, uh, user acquisition, and sort of answer to answers to the fundamental questions with regards to entertainment and audiences. Non-gaming industries and other entertainment markets—you see them starting to dip their toe in it. So there was a, a concert with uh, Lil Nas X uh, the other day. And there was the Travis Scott sort of experience where you have these music artists that are releasing their new titles, their new songs in Fortnite or in Roblox. And they're trying to do this cross promotion, this cross pollination of different formats where they see a persistent synchronous audience in a you know in an online space and say, you know what, we're going to just announce it. And then this artist is going to come out and promote their new sing- single and we're going to have a whole show around it. And so in, in some ways, we're at the very first stages of conventional media starting to incorporate these interactive elements and these online universe elements. Some people will call it the metaverse, right, this persistent online space. And so uh, the lesson really would be to, to start early in the same way that we've seen television uh, and specifically uh, like soap series were subsidized by you know detergent makers back in the day. And so they spin an entire daytime genre you know, purely with their own subsidies. Uh, we're going to see the same thing in gaming in, inevitably, right? It might not be this year or next year, but inevitably we're going to see some of the $70 billion currently being spent on broadcast television sort of move into the game space. And from there, it's going to dramatically change uh, you know, what it means to play games. And I believe in many ways that there's going to be... And you know, the, the first... Forage it will be in the live streaming category.
0: So you're considered probably, at least in academia, the bluest flame thinker around this $160 billion industry. Go out on a limb here. Make some predictions that in one, three, or five years we'll, we'll have you back on the pod and you'll, we'll say, you got this one right, you got this one wrong. Make Put yourself out there and say how you think this industry is going to change or what impact it might have on other industries.
2: So the first one... Um, So, so, okay, so let's do them in in order. So I think because of the size of the industry and the popularity of the industry, we're going to see advertising creep in as a viable revenue model. Not today, uh, not yet, at least we see some game companies doing it, but there is uh, no doubt in my mind that uh, like every other form of media and entertainment, advertisers are going to want to subsidize and get a piece of it. They just haven't really grown out of believing that games are scary or make you violent right mm-hmm. but in fact it's Facebook and social media and Fox News that have you know done to our parents what they thought video games would do to us right that never happened uh, and so entertainment has always relied on advertisers and so we're going to see advertisers come into the game space full force in the next three or five years it's there's no doubt about, and that mm-hmm. it's everywhere from like soda brands to like big companies just owning publishers outright um, the second piece would be big tech. It's going to be a huge scourge uh, when it comes to uh, the games industry. So there's going to be. i consistent,
0: consistent with their behavior and impact across yes. the rest of the world.
2: So I'm surprising you. I know. <laughs> it's um It's just. It, it's just going to. They're be, not going to you know, be what? a
0: source. They're not going to be a source of good. They're not going to be a positive <laughs>
2: influence. No. Yo, it's come a, on. You know, you heard it here first. It's the. It, but it's it's the economics, right? And so they're flooding so much money into the ecosystem that it creates all these false expectations. And you kinda, you see it now. Look, I, I love the teams at Amazon and, and Google because you know these are people that come from the games industry still, right? Mm-hmm. They sort of just hired a bunch of people away. And they're smart, intelligent people. But just the, the DNA tells you which direction they're headed. And it just means we're going to see a whole lot. It's just going to be this buffet of mediocrity. Uh, when it comes to like their cloud gaming su- uh, services, I've been playtesting both of them, and it's just really boring. You know, like this does not get me excited at all. And it's all predicated on this idea: it's like, well, we're really good at tech and content. Well, who, who cares, right? Who gives a shit? Uh, and so, for all those reasons, I think big tech is going to have sort of a, it's going to push back some of the evolution and innovation in the industry a few years because they're going to build up these expectations that they're that no one's going to actually deliver on. Yeah, so that's not one. And it's got to be, of course, like, you know, there's this this whole thing between Japan, China, really becoming this massive, you know, gravity point in the, in the, in the world. So it used to really be that North America was the big deal. Mm-hmm. That's where the economics make the most sense. Then the Japanese, of course, and Nintendo, Sony, they would export a whole bunch of their content and their consoles over. Um, digitalization is afforded China and all these other, like South Korea, all these other countries. India is probably next to really become big and you know they they harboring is the protagonist there like the 10 cents and the next they are going to do really well they're going to buy everything and they have been buying everything and they're going to do, they're going to eat the world right and so you see this huge shift already in terms of how those com- where those companies make their money right so historically asia makes most of its money outside of asia no longer the case it's all inside of asia now and they're only focus on their own markets um, maybe with some you know neighboring uh, uh, geographies over time, that's only going to shift, and you're going to start to see that the U.S. is going to be a second or third tier market in the global games economy, which will be interesting, which you know because there's a lot of trade agreements being written, and there's a lot of sort of political stuff that you can put against it. So, creatively, what does that mean for content? What will that look like? And then, live streaming will be uh, probably bigger than gaming itself. So, right now, it's sort of a sub subcategory where people use it for marketing, and they hang out, and they watch AOC kind of have a cool time for an afternoon that's going to be the category that's 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 bigger than actual playing games and hmm. in that universe as I look at it as you have watching you have playing and then you have of course like the the money that you commit to it so watching gaming is is going to be a massive uh, uh, I guess fourth prediction and so Twitch is really sort of well positioned there uh, YouTube would do really well but you know all of them are sort of all of them are kind of owned already so it's kind of boring which brings me to, I guess the fifth sort of big driver and, and you know, the IPO for a company like Roblox, which is coming up, um, is sort of a vignette with regards to user-generated content. Inherent to the instinct to play, sort of part and parcel to it, is the idea that you want to take ownership of it, right? Um, your kids, I'm sure, as they play all these games, they spend a lot of time sort of tweaking what their character wears, what funny dances it can do, you know how they are perceived by others in a digital environment so you extend that same logic of how do we present ourselves in the in a digital environment and say well i want to build stuff i want to take ownership of this in minecraft my 7 year old figured out how to set up a land uh, land based gameplay with his upstairs neighbor and they're building stuff together and that's the big thing to do it's not actually beating a boss or passing a level they're building stuff and so you know something like a roblox where you enable players, not just to play the game, but play with the game, that's going to be a huge category, which it's all very early for a lot of people, especially in conventional entertainment. But it's coming in the same way that you've seen fan art for Star Wars and, and Star Trek over the years too. Like it, it, people want to not just consume it. They want to, you know, it's, it's much more mimetic, so they want to become it.
0: Yost van Druna teaches at NYU Stern School of Business and is the author of One Up Creativity Competition and the Global Business of Video Games. He's also a startup advisor and investor and previously was the co-founder and CEO of Super Data Research, which was acquired by Nielsen in 2018. He joins us from his home in New York. Yost, stay safe. We'll be right back. It's time for Office Hours, the part of the show where we answer your questions about the business world, big tech, higher education, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at section4.com. First question. Hey, Scott Galloway, John from Boston. You often talk about the need for antitrust action against big tech like Amazon. As you know, the EU and FTC here in the U.S. are investigating Amazon's online marketplace. Specifically, how Amazon uses third-party seller's data to sell its own goods or create private label, competitive products to sell on its site. I see the benefit to Amazon, but how is this any different from what Walmart, Target, Kroger, Costco, Best Buy, and other dominant retailers have done for over 20 years? Like Amazon, retailers emphasize private label brands because they carry a higher gross margin and drive customer loyalty. So please explain why what Amazon is doing is any different. Thanks. John from Boston, that's a thoughtful question. And the short answer is they're not doing anything different. They're just doing it so well that it's basically sucking the oxygen out of the room for all the other players. So um, I advised Levi Strauss & Company in the 90s. And one of the kind of my big pushes, if you will, at Levi Strauss & Company was they need to establish direct channels, specifically start selling on the internet. And JCPenney's threatened to pull all to basically boot Levi's out of the JCPenney's channel if they dared to go direct with their own stores or selling them on their website, despite the fact that JCPenney's launched their own Arizona brand, which was a billion-dollar brand, and they put it up front, better lit, you know, better, better promotions, whatever you want to call it. So you're absolutely right. Uh, retailers have been going vertical and launching their own private label brands for a long time. But typically, typically there's an ecosystem where the key brand creates halo for the, for the private label brand. So, yeah, they're, they're not doing anything differently. They're just doing it at such a scale and they're doing it with such insight into data that there really isn't a partnership here. And that is they essentially create this avatar of a consumer and they watch every move this consumer makes. And they see what is it about those batteries that they like, what kind of batteries. And at the moment they figured out, the moment they figured out we can get more margin from our own products, we kick those guys off, or we just inc- it keep increasing, even worse, we keep increasing their rents. So you got to spend more on Amazon Media Group. You got to spend more for us to fulfill it for you. You got to spend more for us to unpack, package, pick and pack, or returns or handle your returns such so that you get to a point where you are so used to the volume you might be getting through Amazon, but it becomes unprofitable. You start to do a deal with the devil and you begin this inexorable downward spiral as Amazon sees everything you and your consumers are doing. And you're right, they're just better at it. So I think this is so unhealthy, if you will, that we need to return to a Brandeisian form of antitrust where congratulations, you're so good at what you do that you are making it difficult for small firms to get out of the crib and you're prematurely euthanizing big firms. you become so dominant because you own the rails. Just as Facebook and Google, I get very angry at them for polarizing society by putting people into the far left or the far right. That's nothing that CNN or Fox aren't doing. They have been polarizing our nation and ripping at the fabric of America for a long time and they figured out it's absolutely the best way to build a news business. News used to be used to be a public service. And the stations, broadcast stations lost money on it, but they felt it was important. And then in came CNN and Fox and found, well, if we anger people with news, we can make a lot more money. And then and then Twitter and Facebook took their business models and used data and processing power to scale it. So look, Uh, What we have is a dumpster fire in private label at Costco and Walmart. What we have on Amazon, what we have at Facebook and Google is a nuclear mushroom cloud. But yeah, conceptually speaking, I acknowledge the point. They're doing the same thing. It's just that Facebook, Google, and Amazon are doing it at such a scale that it's creating markets that are much less robust, much less competitive. Thank you so much for the thoughtful question, John from Beantown. Is that what they call it? Beantown? Town. Anyways, Boston. Thanks, John. Next question. Hello, Prof G. It's
2: Oscar calling from Australia. Love your work. Keep the badassery coming. You called Apple going into bricks and mortar retail the most gangster move in the last 20 years. You've described Disney's parks like Galaxy's Edge as assets that bring immeasurable value to their hypothetical rundle. You've long praised brands for effectively deploying analog moats around their digital castles, but I'd love to hear your perspective on experience as part of the broader marketing mix, particularly where digital and physical worlds meet. Are successes like Audi City in London, Nike Rise in China, or Sonos and Google's New York show, outliers, or do they point a way forward for brands? Thanks, Scott.
0: I think that this pop-up, what you call experiential retail, is incredibly... Um, valuable in the short run. I think of it as like marketing. I don't don't think of it as a business channel. What you've seen though, is when you go into a Sephora, when you go into a Nike town, when you go into what Samsung should be, and that's the opportunity around Samsung, you see uh, retail that is increasingly more experiential. Consumers don't go to stores for products. They go for people or for an experience. They're going to Best Buy for a person who is knowledgeable about PS5, although the goddamn thing is sold out. Thanks very much. Uh, they're going for experiences. These big burst experiences, this pop-up experiential retail is really interesting. It has to do with duration. So this pop-up, if you will, experiential uh, retail, which has taken a big hit in COVID, which was like the Frozen Mansion or the Museum of Ice Cream. What they figured out, what they figured out, is scarcity. And then as I see a Ben and Jerry's, and I know it's a ten-year lease, so I know I can get ice cream the next weekend. Whereas I see the Museum of Ice Cream is in Miami. For just ninety days or, or sixteen weeks. They was extended. And I end up spending seventy-two dollars per person. No joke. So my kids can have pistachio ice cream, supposedly explore their imagination by jumping into a pool of plastic balls. Why? Why do I go? Why do I do this? Why do I have ice cream and have them jump into a ball pit for $72? Because of scarcity. It's going away. So which is to a certain extent. This experiential retail is not only about the experience, it's about the finite nature of it. I remember going to an HBO pop-up at South by Southwest, and there were lines around the block. And while I thought it was wonderful, I think the thing that made it special was it was only going to be there for five days. So, yeah, this is part of a marketing budget. They're not self-sustaining. The future of retail is something so special or so efficient, and that is it's a small ghost kitchen, a small Chipotle that's only a 1,000 square feet, a small 2,000-square-foot Panera that has pickup has delivery, has click and collect, whatever you wanna call it, and it becomes just remarkably efficient or a distribution hub as much as a retail center, or it's a place that just surprises you and delights you, a Nike town or a Sephora. And if you wanna spend, there'll be some marketing allocation around experiential high impact, if you will, pop-up retail. Thanks for the call.
2: Last question. Hey Scott, Marshall Berman, Livingston, New Jersey. Love the show. With the majority of students in K through 12 taking some form of online education, which of the four uh, big tech players Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft do you think are going to take the lead and end up having the best online education platform uh, for the future?
0: Uh, Marshall from New Jersey. Thanks for the thoughtful question. This is a really important question. And I would argue, I was thinking about this today. I was on MSNBC this morning with Stephanie Roll, who I love, who I love talking about stimulus and PPP. And I think we've just gotten this so wrong. $750 billion of small business, a third of them, the money probably got to the right place. And there's some cupcake bakery or small business that needed a bridge. I think for most of them, it's done one of two things. It's either been a peer, and that is the business, we've just kicked the can there on the road. The economy is reshaping and that business what not going to survive. We hear so many sob stories about local restaurants going out of business. We're changing the way we consume food. A lot of restaurants should go out of business. And by the way, they say, well, 10 million people are employed by restaurants. Yeah. Okay, get the money to those 10 million people, not to the restaurants, and then let the 10 million people decide what restaurants should stay in business. Anyway, I was on MSNBC and we were talking about uh, uh, the PPP and it just struck me that we've got it all wrong that 750 billion dollars shouldn't gone to the wealthiest cohort in the world and that of small business owners that 750 billion dollars should have gone to schools. why? Because small business having to reshape or go out of business is really meaningful, it's terrible, but that's capitalism. What's profoundly what's profoundly tragic is the fact that fifty percent of low-income kids have all of a sudden, vastly underperformed, fallen off the map in terms of math as it relates to middle-income kids. Typically, typically lower-income kids in public schools track with upper-income kids around math. But as we've gone to remote learning, because lower-income kids may not have an iPad or maybe they're worried about their iPad getting stolen or maybe they don't have broadband or maybe mom has to go to work and can't sit home with them and help them do online learning, we are losing a generation of young people. And beyond how just like morally fucked up that is, It's just stupid for us economically. We're going to lose a generation of doctors. We're going to lose a generation of fantastic leaders in public service and for our armed services. We're going to lose, we're going to be less likely to find vaccinations in the future. We are letting a generation, the real impact of this pandemic, I think, is going to be felt softly and insidiously with a lost generation of kids. So I think your question is really important. And I don't think we can hope that big tech shows up with all their innovation and better angels, of which there are almost none, and solve that problem. I think it has to be solved by government. I think they absolutely should be bailing out K-12 schools. In terms of the individuals, Apple has a great brand in education. Google threatened to do something noble with their certificate program. By the way, Sundar Prashad personally told me about it on pivot i'm hoping it's not a head fake and that they weren't playing with my emotions because i haven't heard much about it because i will go gangster on their asses not that they think about me every day i just don't think they think about me at all which makes sense but anyways i really hope that google is taking the certification seriously that they promised but yeah could big tech come together wouldn't it be wonderful if these guys took a fraction of their cash flow and adopted schools and regions and said we have got to figure out a way to make sure there isn't a lost generation of kids. A 19-year-old trapped at home who can't return for a sophomore year at Tulane is a nuisance. A nine-year-old trapped at home who can't get back to public school, that is a tragedy. That is is a—that is the collapse of a high school. So I'm not answering your question. I use it as, a, as a, an opportunity to do a bunch of virtue signaling and riff here, but I don't see Amazon, Apple, Google, or Microsoft stepping up to the plate, and I'm not sure they should. We have a tendency to hope that innovators are going to show up and save us. They're not. They're going to show up and do amazing things and make a shit ton of money for them and their shareholders. We need the greatest force of good in history to show up and ensure that we don't lose a generation. And that source of good, that source of prosperity, that source of progress and education, that's Uncle Sam. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burroughs. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of The Prop G Show from Section 4 and the Westwood One Podcast Network.